Hi, I'm Maisie Cohen, and welcome to Rhyming the Dead, a Red Room Company radio series produced with the assistance of the Community Radio Network. Over five episodes, we'll hear new works from 10 poets around the country who were asked to reflect on a dead poet of their choice and how that person's life and death has profoundly influenced their writing. Today, we're packing up and heading overseas as we hear new poems from Jacob Zagurus, inspired by the prolific Polish poet and translator Stanislaw Barnczak. And Bella Lee leads us through her response to the tenacious teenage poet of the late 19th century, Arthur Rimbaud. From certain points on the Copperfoot bridges, on the platforms, on the stairways that wind around the markets and the pillars, I thought I might form an idea of the depth of the city. Stanislaw Baranczak was an accomplished writer who translated many volumes of poems and plays into Polish. He was viewed by the communist regime at the time as a dissident, and in the 70s was banned from publishing or reading his poetry in public. Jacob Zagurus. I was asked by a friend here in Poland uh, who had written a, uh, an essay in memory of Baranczak for a, a journal here in Poland, and he asked me to translate the essay into English. So I, I started with that, and as I was translating the essay, I, I became more interested in his poetry and started reading one book in particular, um, Winter Journey, and uh, yeah, became very fascinated in his work. Definitely a lot of his poetry is uh, is critical and uh, satirical sometimes. There's a lot of emphasis and, and attention to, to language and uh, a lot of uh, sort of critique of language, but... It's usually directed against government propaganda, essentially, and the sort of debased newspeak. Płynie rzekawą wozem jak dnem kolejny, która sama siebie żłobiła. Rosną ściany wąwozu z obu stron coraz wyżej, tam na górze są ponoć równiny. I never wanted to be uh, an active political figure, so to speak. How come I became somebody like that? In the mid-70s it was completely impossible to publish anything truly essential to society. Of course, it was possible to be published if the censor didn't sniff in your poems or novels some allusions to the contemporary reality. Literature has its own way to deceive the censor, to, to outsmart him, so to speak. But um, it had some very dangerous effects to literature. I mean, the, this constant outsmarting of, of the censors. I felt sometimes that I'm uh, using, um, for example, metaphorical language not because of uh, of my wish to use metaphors, but because it's. Uh, I wouldn't like to say safer. This wasn't my my real real reason for for doing that, but because it can pass through censorship much much better, you know. While there is that kind of playful, critical edge to it, I think really my impression is that uh, his criticism, even at times, his fairly bleak uh, perspective on things was always in the service of, you know, a faith in, a very strong faith in certain values and truth certainly being one of them. But I think he was just, you know, he was aware of how, how difficult it is to find and how contested it is and how careful you have to be to, uh, in making any claims to, to possess it. Snow like wool, frost like ashes. 
for Stanisław Barańczak. Epigraph, Snow is False Purity, J.W. von Goethe. 1. Death. Epigraph, But this is nothing. How could such nothing stand between us? Yes, I know you won't reply to my last postcard, but this I'll blame on some real thing, the postman, a plane crash, censorship, not non-existence which, you'll grant, does not exist. Stanisław Baranchak for Grazina. My postcard shows a snowman who has lost his eyes and nose, and yours? An island between two azures, here it snows, weightless flakes of artifice, words that cast no shade, trifles so precisely nice, delicately made, that they seem barely to exist, thin as razor blades from the shaving foam of mist, carving bloodless shades. Which side is the negative as yet unexposed? Neither side seems positive, the other isn't posed. Tell me about how you approached this project. Did you have a different way of working for each of the poems? I did take a very specific sort of approach uh, to these poems, which was quite different from the way I, I usually work. I was very influenced in, uh, in the case of these poems by this, uh, this particular collection of Baranchak's Winter Journey, which uh, is a series of quite short, usually, poems uh, based on the music of Schubert, the Winterreise, which is a, a song cycle. Um, the, the original song cycle was written in response to uh, another series of poems by a, a romantic, a German romantic poet called Wilhelm Müller. And Baranchak essentially wrote his own series of poems partly in relation to the original poems, but mostly, uh, mostly I think, in dialogue with the music. Those poems uh, were a very strong influence on the, the tone and the style, uh, even, even the metre of, of these poems of mine. Two, in which we live and breathe. Epigraph. The common air in which we live and breathe, the air in which we gasp and suffocate. Stanisław Baranchak, Morning Hymn. Although each breath predicts a thaw, you see the lack of sound. Here tears and spit both freeze before they ever touch the ground. The air transparent as a norm now hardens like cement. The snow is marked by cuneiform and pigeon excrement. Triumphant summer in the dirt and brittle litter lay. It writhed in autumn's Nessus shirt burning in decay. Now stainless steel machines compact their goal a monolith, the rusty scrap of myth to fact, a more convenient myth. Three, snow. The street is empty. 
wafers fall and freeze autumnal tongues of maudland trees whose pastoral regrets and pagan songs above the vital blooded soil quaver like tattered flags a puddle backed by glinting foil is wiped by wispy rags are these the words in which the dead express their clear accord or lace they tat above my head to keep from being bored are snowflakes tokens of one type or species sent perdu into the endless flashbulb hype attending each debut as i was translating winter journey i became very aware of the you know particular difficulties of translating poetry and and uh, especially poetry like baranchak's because a lot of it is very focused on idioms uh you know playing around with idioms questioning idioms working with with resources that are specific to to polish and and that in many cases are, are really you know untranslatable or at least seem to be untranslatable You're listening to Rhyming the Dead, and I'm speaking to Jacob Zagurus in Poland about his poems inspired by Stanislaw Baranczak. I couldn't help thinking about this project and, uh, you know, thinking about this sort of central idea of there being some kind of dialogue with, with a poet who's, uh, who's passed away. It seemed to me that that's, uh, you know, that's an example of an even more extreme sort of translation. So I was partly thinking uh, about the the idea of imagining uh, Baranchak, if he's out there somewhere, um, if there is some kind of existence after death, imagining what would, uh, what language might he be speaking, what would be his relationship to to his earlier poetry, to to the Polish language, and so part of the the theme of the the, the poems was a sort of fairly abstract philosophical question of uh, you know whether there's any kind of language that transcends the particular human languages and is able to unify them and allow us to to move between them nine the night descends epigraph Above our heads, above our words, above our homes, above our fumes, above our roofs, above our breaths, the night descends. Stanisław Baranczak, Evening Hymn. Upon our words, the night descends, an untranslatable sentence meant for foes and friends. We fade beneath the pall. It drapes upon our plywood arc, law's remnants, odds and ends. We dive and rising from that dark, we suffer from the bends. Or tangled in its tentacles, drown in a cloud of ink. And gathered in its cenacles, fear drinken sie, we drink this amen absent all amends. On hate and tenderness, Upon our worlds the night descends, waste howling wilderness. You say he used the imagery of snow to reference the oppressiveness he felt living in Poland at the time. 
Was reflecting the political realities of communist society important to him? It's kind of connected to me, that question, to the you know, broader question, for, to what extent he, uh, he was a political poet. And uh, there's a very interesting statement he makes in, in one of his essays. I, I forget now which one it was, but he, uh, he says that he's, he's always been surprised that people tend to categorize him as a political poet, or on the other hand, some people categorized him as a metaphysical poet and his response to that is to say essentially that he thinks it's a it's a bogus distinction and that if he's writing a poem about waiting in a queue for example to uh, at the butchers or about the experience of living in one of these gray concrete apartment blocks that that's as much a metaphysical uh, poem than it is a political one and vice versa you know, he, he was uh, above all sceptical and, and very humanist in, in a lot of his, his views and very highly individualistic. He felt it was his duty as a poet to oppose all forms of oppression, not just political ones. You're listening to Rhyming the Dead. And now, Bella Lee takes us on a journey to Africa and beyond, with her work inspired by the French poet Arthur Rimbaud. Rimbaud famously denounced poetry before turning 21, going on to travel extensively, trying his hand at the trades of photographer, coffee merchant and gunrunner, among others. Anytime... I guess anybody asks you about influences um, and you think about it too much, suddenly it becomes this like giant in the room. <laughs> You're like, you know, who do I pick and for what reason? And I think I ended up, I had a short list of four or five and I drew names out of a hat and um, eventually thought this is ridiculous. So I just picked Rumbo because I think because his poetry really did inspire me quite a lot at a point where um, I think my own poetry was developing in a particular direction, not only in terms of form, so the prose poem, which is a form that I kind of work in almost exclusively now, but also just the, the openness of his work, that um, there's so much that can be read into you know, his poetry. I found that really exciting and liberating as well. Rumbo in Africa. I am sending you a bird's head in a steel box filled with alcohol. I believe this bird is unique to the Hara area. It is known here as Gumu. Perhaps you saw it when you were here. It is the size of a large turkey and is completely black. Forgetting for a moment the dangerous imprecisions of the spirit. On the docks in Hara where the ships drift, on the docks, in Hara finding the spirit seeking new directions, avalanches of books, soul asleep. Dear Paul, a feeling comes once in a while of falling, having really disappeared, though imprecisely, though imperfect, as we must when, leafing through my copy of Guide du Voyageur, Numbers descending in clear lines, realising imperfectly the sounds of sleep. Steel box filled with heads, unique and black, large and completely. In sleep, 
In drifting, I have found... I have not found what I expected. I actually discovered him through a dead painter. So I'd um, gone to Sydney and I went to the Brett Whiteley studio, um, which is one of my favourite places in Sydney. Went up to his studio, which they've kind of preserved, and it includes um, all these quotes that he's written up on the walls. There were a few Rumbo quotes, I think, and there was one in particular that I remember reading from, um, I think it's from A Season in Hell, and it was just such a, an amazing image. It was something like, something, something at the foot of a sun-eaten wall. Um, and I thought that was just amazing. So I wrote it down in my notebook, and then, um, as usually happens, I didn't actually chase up the reference until a few months later when I'd gotten back. Some verdigree, some weeks aboard the wandering chief, cargo and the salt waves bravely towards the sun. The year 1876 saw a very strange adventure. Here, among the delinquents and the fugitives and outcasts. Among the fugitives, at the funeral, along steel railings with head-shaved railing against. Come back, come back, dear friend, one friend, come back. Bravely, patiently, weeping. Passing in darkness the desolate harbours, great peninsulas unmoored, salt waves. Here, my friends, turning, weeping once more, into the desert where, once more he disappears from all record. The arrival, at a long, low building set back from the sea, of the former poet. In Aden, to be confused with Eden, I met a porter who recalled the blue eyes, tussled hair. It was spring in the interior, and with great ceremony, having lost ourselves among the blue, having lost, we repaired to the foyer of the Grand Hotel de l'Univers. In the evening, with the dining chairs set back against the long, low crescent, the road, the sea, eleven arcades, boxed gardens, strolling to a clearing in the circle of trees, forest beneath the palace, the sea. Dear, in Arcadia I too, but the sea, the long, the low, said the porter, said, this gamon with his little felt hat. You're listening to Rhyming the Dead, and I'm speaking to Melbourne-based poet Bella Lee about her poem, Rambo in Africa. Part of the reason actually why I picked Rambo in the end was because of his really interesting biography, and particularly the point at which he renounced poetry and went travelling, you know, this, this poet who stopped being a poet. Why would he have turned his back on poetry so definitively? It's an interesting question because I don't think he's stated it explicitly anywhere. It was this consuming kind of, you know, it went beyond being a profession. It was, you know, a calling. It was almost like a religious sort of undertaking for him. I read this great biography when I was doing research for this called Someone Else, Arthur Rambo in Africa by um, this guy called Charles Nichols. And he says this disavowal of poetry is a part of 
who he is as a person. So he says his whole life, and I'm quoting here, is a story of departures and flights, of disappearances and reappearances, um, and his abandonment of poetry was only the most famous, the most regretted of his departures. And, you know, if you look at the trajectory of his life, you know, his constant movements, it really does seem to hold true that, you know, what we see as this you know, this huge shift from being this poet and this visionary to being, you know, a coffee trader in Africa is actually quite, you know, he's, he's consistent in his inconsistencies. Dear Sir, I'm interested in developing the market for precision instruments in the East. Mathematical, optical, astronomical, electrical, meteorological, pneumatic, hydraulic, mineralogical. Only remove surgical, remove meat on the blade, the old, the blind, assassins. Measure with precision so that to remove, so to avenge, avenge completely. That bright vision, the east, once in corridor of dream, flight of the dove in flight, along roads, through temples in fright. Unique bird, that setting, the hour, in madness and hope, wheeling from door to door until, at the inn, something seized by the blood of the throat. Shotiro bristles with cartridges. Shotiro holds an unlit cigarette in his left hand. Shotiro advances and smiles, carries a Winchester repeating, repeating rifle. Shotiro strides and the dust lifts gently. Riding boots, spurs, children gathering in clouds about. Dear Shotiro, Black cloud of smoke and behind the camera are chiefly engaged in portraiture, chiefly aperture and shutter. Closing on the long, dark avenue of the shore, along quiet boulevards, falling, advancing, darkly, quietly, rampantly, banana trees flourish. Ville. L'acropole officielle, outre les conceptions de la barbarie moderne les plus colossales. Impossible d'exprimer le jour mat produit par ce ciel. With a singular taste for enormity, all the classical marvels of architecture have been reproduced, and I visit exhibitions of painting in premises 20 times as vast as Hamilton Park. Le représente la nature primitive travaillée par un art superbe. Le haut quartier des parties in the suburb as elegant as a beautiful Paris street, is favored with air like light. Le faubourg se perd bizarrement dans la campagne, le comté qui remplit l'Occident, éternel des forêts et des plantations prodigieuses. There too, the houses do not follow each other. The suburb loses itself queerly in the country, the county that fills the eternal west with forests and prodigious plantations, where gentlemen savages hunt their news by the light they have invented. Footsteps in the hall. In autumn, my last ship. Where outside the sun, the weather. Recalling again how many I had read, so often blind. I wish you good health and prosperity, fine weather, and a good time. K. 
curious fact to come back, to pay so dearly in sleep so to bury. Along railings brief chaos, forgetting for a moment, footsteps sounding in the interior. Dining chairs, those blonde grand arcades set back against, long paths and low. We had repaired, drifting into blue some vault through childhood white tomb boxed walls. D. When will you leave again? A. As soon as possible. Those winter nights on the road, little Rambo, from door to door on its hinge, in the wind the past walking itself, bridge to, across sullen star, red path and the child returned by way of flight, by way of shadow to itself. In night, in the shadow of the corridors, by dark edges illumined, passes through his life like a meteor. Dear lights disappearing, one by one along the bridge, my star, passing, passes. In Paris, the crowd surges around the Hôtel de Ville. He comes back to France for his leg to be treated, but the entire time he's itching to get back to Africa and to resume his trading. He has this manic energy, and right up until the end, when he's like delirious and hallucinating, the day before he dies, he dictates this letter to his sister, and it's a letter to the manager of a, of a, of a ship. Um, and so this last letter is all about how can I get back? When is the next ship that leaves from here to here? So, you know, that that's kind of something that's clearly on his mind even even as he's dying. He kind of admonishes his mother or his sister for speaking about death and about sickness. He's like, why, why dwell on these things? Um, and it's only when he's facing death himself, the very end of his life, where he starts to write about death with an awareness of, you know, his own mortality. Next time on Rhyming the Dead, the poetic trails left by two Australian poets who loved the landscape. Sam Wagon Watson reflects on the life of Martin Harrison, his friend and mentor with whom he took several poetic journeys. And Melody Paloma reflects on the imprints of Jennifer Rankin in her work as she embarks on her own road trip through the country Rankin loved to sculpt with words. The music in this episode was produced by Marianth Lucataris, Edwin Montgomery and Mary Webb. Thanks to Sebastian Roussel for lending a voice to Rambo in this episode and Richard Adams for the audio of Stanislav Baranchak. You can find other episodes, extended interviews with all 10 poets and transcripts at our website, redroomcompany.org. Thanks for being with me. I'm Maisie Cohen, and this is Rhyming the Dead. <laughs>